now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. That call to eight tiny reindeer to press on into a snowy night is the classic Christmas calling of what we're conditioned to hope for, and it's fine as far as it goes. It certainly invokes pleasant imaginings as we think of it and and heartwarming tradition on a night of worldwide hope. But for the good of our souls, Luke has given to us the infinitely greater Christmas calling of John, whom we call the Baptist, which comes shortly after John's birth and anticipating the birth of Jesus. And it reads like this. You see it in your bulletin from Luke chapter one. And his father, that is John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel." Luke, in my opinion, is the best Christmas gospel. No discredit to the others. Matthew and John acknowledge the birth of Jesus in their own sorts of ways. Mark is in a hurry, and he just skips right over it altogether. But in my opinion, Luke is the best of the Christmas gospels. I mean, even Charlie Brown knows that. And the first character that you meet in Luke's presentation of Christmas is a priest named Zechariah. He's a curious character, a very curious one. Indeed, he and his wife, Elizabeth, both, they are righteous before God, Luke tells us, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. In other words, they are faithful people. They're also old people, and they have no children of their own. Now, we've been studying Genesis together for some months, and so you can already see where this is going. The New Testament continues with the same stories of the Old Testament. Zechariah's division of priests was on duty to serve in the temple. There were 24 divisions of priests, and they each would take two weeks of the year to go and serve in the temple. And it's Zechariah's division's turn, and there they are serving in the temple. And according to custom... They drew lots to see which of them would enter into the holy place, into the presence of God, to burn incense before God. And the lot fell 
to Zechariah. Now, there were probably, I would guess, hundreds of priests in each of the divisions of priests, and so relatively few of them would be chosen for this duty. The lot would fall to only a few of them, and so Zechariah gets his turn. Others would never even get to do it. This is probably the pinnacle, as it were, of Zechariah's priestly career. It's an important moment for him. And so in he went to the holy place of the temple, while the multitude of people stayed outside and prayed while he was in. And lo and behold, there in the holy place of the temple, Zechariah was not alone. Not only was there the presence of God, there was the presence of an angel standing beside the altar. And the angel spoke. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Always the first words out of an angel's mouth. Always. Always the first words out of an angel's mouth. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son. He had evidently been praying for that. They, they both surely had been praying for it for decades. And now Elizabeth will have a son. The angel continued, you shall call his name John. And he shall have a particular Christmas calling. That's my translation. And at this point, Zechariah made what I would call a crucial mistake. He doubted. Zechariah responded to this angel. Uh, Mr. Angel, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm old. And have you seen my wife? She's old too. And we know the way things work, Mr. Angel. Maybe you don't. You're an angel. This is not going to happen. That was essentially Zechariah's response. And I would imagine that if ever an angel frowned with disapproval at a person or raised their eyebrow in skepticism, this is probably the moment. And so the angel replied. I imagine he cleared his throat. Zechariah, do you know who I am? I am Gabriel, he said. I stand in the presence of Yahweh. I have come from Yahweh. He sent me to speak these words to you, and you doubt? And so behold, Zechariah, you will be silent, unable to speak until the day that this is fulfilled. And immediately, Zechariah's voice box went mute. His vocal cords Shut down. His yapper was unyapped. And for nine months, he would not be able to speak. And some would suggest, some of the text seems to indicate perhaps, that he also would not be able to hear. He would be mute and perhaps deaf for the months to come. And you can imagine the consternation of the crowd outside as he returned out from the the temple. They realized that he'd seen a vision and they, they tried some some sign language with him, but to no avail. And so everybody just went home. And behold, Elizabeth remarkably conceived. Six months into her pregnancy, the same angel visited a virgin named Mary in Nazareth with similar news. And Mary, unlike Zechariah, believed what Gabriel spoke to her. And she replied with her famous words, let it be to your servant as you say. And she kept her voice. Now, within 
days, Mary actually got up and went to visit her relative, Elizabeth, and the now long, silent Zechariah. And when she spoke words of greeting, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, now six months or so along, leaped with joy. I mean, even the pre-born John knew when he was in the presence of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a remarkable thing. And three months later, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and so her son arrived. And her neighbors and relatives gathered around, probably on the eighth day when circumcision would have happened and the naming of the child would occur. And the neighbors and relatives just assumed, this is going to be Zachariah Jr. I mean, what else would you name this boy? And Elizabeth corrected them, no, no, his name is John. And they were puzzled. What do you mean John? I mean, John's a strong name. It's a good name. It means God is gracious. God is merciful. But nobody in your family is named John, they said. And so they turned to Zechariah, who was still mute. And he evidently perceived their confusion about things. So he took a tablet and wrote in chalk or whatever he had, his name is John. And at that moment, immediately, Zechariah's mouth was opened and his Tongue was loosed and he spoke the words that you heard moments ago. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Nine months of silence on Zechariah's part concluded with one moment of prophetic Holy Spirit inspiration. And within a moment, Zechariah had issued a Christmas calling to believe. Not to believe in fairy tales, but to believe in God, to believe his promises and to believe his ways, to believe his promises. During nine months of silence and perhaps deafness as well, what do you think Zechariah might have been doing? I suspect he was reading scripture. I imagine after that moment with the angel in the holy place, he had gone back to scriptures in his own silence and begun to reread Genesis. He probably wanted to go back to that story of Abraham and Sarah and recall what God had done for them. And, and he carried on through the prophets to see all of God's promises to his people. And by now it was ready to burst out of him after nine months. He probably had smacked himself on the head and said, How foolish of me to doubt that angel's word. If God could do this sort of thing with Abraham and Sarah... Surely he could do it with us as well. And I suppose that Zechariah is no worse for the wear at this point, but he's certainly wiser for the silence. And so Zechariah recalls the oath that God had sworn to our father Abraham to remember his people. Verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. This First call to believe is not a call to believe in the baby John who had just been born. Remember, John is the son of Zechariah, who is a descendant of Levi, a priest. He is not of the house of David from the house of Judah. That's not who Zechariah is talking about here. Zechariah actually goes straight to the business end of God's promise. A redeemer is coming. A powerful redeemer, a horn of salvation, not an instrument horn, but an animal horn. A powerful redeemer is coming as God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Prophets like Haggai, who had promised 
the coming temple, the, the, re, the restored temple of God for his people. And yet Haggai had his eyes set on the glory of God on the horizon. And Zechariah here is promising, suggesting a remarkable truth that God with us, as Isaiah had said in Zechariah's readings during his silence, that God with us would mean that Jesus would come, that, that God in the flesh would come and deliver us from the enemy, from the accuser, to free us to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness all of our days. That is, to rest in the righteousness of Christ and to be renewed by the work of His Holy Spirit and to anticipate the restoration coming on the last day. This God had promised to Abraham. This God had promised to Isaac and Jacob and to Joseph. This God had promised to David and all of the prophets. And this God would deliver in the coming of Jesus Christ because God is gracious and God is merciful. His promise will come to fruition. Do you believe his promise? So your Christmas calling is to believe God's promise, but it's also to believe God's ways. After reflecting on the infant soon to be born, Zechariah now turns his attention on the, to the child that is in his own arms, the one who's just now been born to John himself. Verse 76, And you, child, speaking to his own son, will be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Now, 400 years before Zechariah spoke these words, before the long silence from God of the time between the Testaments, the last words of the Old Testament came from Malachi the prophet, and they were these, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. That was 400 years before, but nine months before Zechariah's word, the angel Gabriel in the holy place of the temple had spoken these very same words to Zechariah, followed by Zechariah's own long silence. The ways of God are to be patient through the silence, but the ways of God are also to accomplish the remarkable through the ordinary to call a mere person like John to proclaim this good news of the ages. This is the way of God. I saw a meme online here Christmas week. Someone had posted and the caption read, you thought joining the resistance would look like this. And the picture was of soldiers with guns in wartime posture. And then the caption continues, but actually it looks like this. And the next picture was of a family and friends gathered around a Christmas feast. It's so ordinary. I mean, we so easily assume that God will give light to those who sit in the darkness by way of big events or amazing holiday experiences. And yet here we are with another sunny 80 degree Christmas day ahead of us tomorrow here in Texas. I mean, it's just so ordinary, isn't it? But... Resisting the ways of the world is not accomplished by the ways of the world. It's accomplished by the celebration of grace. When the Lord returns, and Sunday, two days from now, we'll consider that prospect. When the Lord returns, the temple that Haggai anticipated 
will be complete. The glory of God will be made clear. But meanwhile, his way is to use ordinary people doing ordinary things with their ordinary lives to bring about extraordinary hope. You might debate, of course, whether John the Baptist was an ordinary person. I mean, his, his camel hair clothing and his locust and honey diet probably doesn't suit most of us very well. But what was John after all? John was a sinner. And a sinner is a sinner is a sinner is a sinner. And God makes use of ordinary sinners in extraordinary ways. The Christmas hype would have us to think that we should engage in something extraordinary, but God's ways are simple. God's ways are the bread and wine of communion. And God's ways are the water of baptism. And God's ways are the fellowship of worship. God's ways are the celebration of grace as His people gather together. John's Christmas calling is a call to you and me to believe, but not in fairy tales and not in worldly schemes, but rather it's a call to you and me to believe in the promises of God and in the ways of our great God because He is, as John's name suggests, gracious and merciful in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit Amen. Father, would you help us to believe that? Would you cause us to rejoice and celebrate your grace to us in our twisted and broken hearts and to see the hope that you give to us in the coming of Jesus? And we pray in his name. Amen.